have a very proactive look at what we're trying to achieve and trying to make it fit into the future and really thinking about if you have the possibility in your group to actually look at the design of your transfer pricing and the structure and how it's aligned with your businesses. Because if you're doing all this right and setting it up in the right manner and actually doing transfer pricing planning, then any documentation will just be trivial after that. And it will also just help your businesses in so many other aspects. See if you can revert the reactive into a more proactive approach. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 384 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. The world is getting smaller. An increasing number of our clients don't just have Australian entities, but also have a related entity overseas. And it's not just our clients. It's also us as a profession. Do you remember the accountant in episode 359 who set up a company in Sri Lanka and then employed his own offshore team through this company? The moment you set up an entity overseas and trade with it, like this accountant, you have a transfer pricing issue. Transfer pricing sits in subdivision 815B and C of the ITAA 97 and is about Australian entities and slash or permanent establishments in Australia dealing with foreign associated entities. So Australian transfer pricing only applies to Australian entities and PEs in Australia. And Australian transfer pricing only applies if those Australian entities or PEs trade with a related party overseas. Trading with a third party overseas does not give you a transfer pricing issue. In the following interview with Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson Australia, we focus on Australian entities and we don't talk much about PEs in Australia. But of course, PEs are part of the same framework. PEs in Australia, that is. As you know, whether there is a PE in Australia or not depends on the relevant tax treaty. The double tax agreement with the other country where the other related party sits, that double tax agreement will determine whether you have a PE in Australia or not. Before we start, let's just quickly ask Benedict Ulrich what MNE and LAP means. What does MNEs, by the way, stand for? Multinational Enterprise. Oh, I see. And what does ALP stand for? Arms Link Pricing. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. No, no, it's good you're asking because it's things when you're working in it, you have all these acronyms that <laughs> doesn't make sense for other people in that little mm. niche industry. So MNE and LLP, those two acronyms are really what transfer pricing is about. Multinational enterprises, so enterprises that have entities in at least two countries, one of them Australia. And arm's length prices, meaning making sure that the transactions between those two related entities in two different countries trade at arm's length. But now let's go to the actual interview. Here's Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson Australia about transfer pricing. If 
transfer pricing wasn't an issue, it would be very easy to transfer profits out of Australia because you would just have an entity in Australia, you would have an entity in a low tax jurisdiction, and then you would just price whatever the overseas entity is providing to the Australian entity at such an inflated price that there is no profit left in Australia and hence you would have transferred the profit. So the intention of the whole transfer pricing legislation and BEPS project, etc., is to stop this moving around of profits, correct? Yes. So we're talking companies that's called multinational enterprises. So they're obviously part of the same economic group. And Benedicte, when we say multinational enterprise, of course, it feels like we're talking about Coca-Cola or Adidas or, you know, really big enterprises. But it actually can be a really small enterprises. At the moment you set up an entity in another jurisdiction, you're basically a multinational enterprise, correct? That's correct. Of course, we're thinking about when we say multinational enterprises or MNEs. We always think, as you said, Coca-Cola or Amazon or something like that. But it could be just something that's on a group scale of $10 million US turnover. It can be somebody who's just an entrepreneur who's starting up biopharmaceuticals and they're very, very small to start with, but they're still in two or three jurisdictions and then suddenly they are in multinational enterprise. Or for example, it is very common for e-commerce in Australia to have an LLC in the US. If you are selling into the US, you most likely have an LLC. Hence, you're a multinational enterprise. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, Multinational enterprises are the uh, recipients of this transfer pricing legislation. That's what this legislation is aiming at. Yes, correct. So the risk is that amongst the tax authorities, they will have different views on what the actually transfer price should be. Let's say within the group, there is two countries, country A and country B. And country A is selling a product to country B. And that product is priced at $50. They think that that's the transfer price and that's the correct price within the group for what they're doing. So the tax authorities of the receiving country, they obviously think, okay, they're saying that the arm's length price is 50, but we think it is no more than 50 because obviously the more that transfer pricing is for the receiving country, the more profit that's going to come out of that country's M&E group's presentation in country A. And reverse for the other one, for the one who is actually providing the product, they're obviously interested in it's $50 or more. That's because the conflict. So it's basically a zero-sum game. Whatever one country wins, another country loses. Correct, correct. So if there was no sort of global consensus to how is this actually managed, <laughs> we will have a lot of issues because obviously uh, each tax jurisdiction would like as much of this cake as possible and you will have a lot of issues and disputes and also a lot of double taxation issues and risk. So that's why the OECD came in in um, 1995 with the first version of guidelines to how should we actually determine what is the right arm's length price and how do you document how you have come to this arm's length price. Before we look at the actual legislation, just one more thought and that is the question of transfer pricing has two intentions attached to it. One intention is between the two countries that each country of course wants to have as much tax as possible on this income. But the other intention for this is also very often the double tax agreements don't really 
work in terms of that there is still a lot of double taxation and you avoid that by basically trying to repatriate all the profits back to where your main tax jurisdiction is. So let me say this differently. If there's not much difference in tax between A and B, then you would think there is no incentive to transfer profits from A to B. But if B is your main tax jurisdiction, then you still have an incentive to transfer the profits from A to B because very often when you have profits in A, you know, in another country and you pay tax there, very often the double tax agreements don't really work that well to avoid double taxation and hence you very much face double taxation and hence there's another intention of moving profits from A to B. So one intention is to leverage lower tax jurisdictions, but another one is to just avoid double taxation by trying to repatriate as much as possible back to your main tax jurisdiction. Sorry, that was a very long <laughs> that was a very long way to try to express this thought. But do you agree? Yes. So what happened back in 95, they first set out some consensus, we want to have the same sort of metrics like that all MNEs and tax administrators can follow. And they call that the five-step process. So it's literally a five-step process that you go through that MNEs has to comply with or have to at least follow those guidelines so they can show the tax administrators, this is what we have done to come to what we called an arm's length price. And That is literally the guidelines, what the OECD is calling complying with the arm's length principle. And what that is, is literally saying, okay, we believe that the arm's length price or the arm's length profit margin for what you're doing is this. And we have come up with this by explaining what we're doing, what is the transfer pricing method that makes most sense to get to this. And normally there will be either, is it a direct price comparison? Is it a direct cost plus comparison? Or have we gone to another level because that's hard to find a more direct a comparison? So we've gone to a more operating margin level and or are we looking at a profit split? So I don't want it to be too technical, but it's literally just more saying we've gone through all these sort of different steps. And then what we're doing, we are finding a comparable but independent benchmarks to showcase that this is what arms link transaction or parties would have done in the same scenario. So we're benchmarking that. Yeah. So that is the sort of the the really the basic of transfer pricing and how it started out. Can I just quickly ask you a question? This 1995 transfer pricing framework you mentioned, was that the first attempt by the OECD before the BEPS project? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, so this was sort of like the general consensus that came out and everybody relied on and, and most jurisdictions, they either is completely aligned with it or they acknowledge it and followed it on a high level. Okay, good. And so this 1995 framework included five steps and the aim of these five steps is to get to a comparable but independent benchmark for the ALP and the ALP is arm's length price. So comparable but independent benchmark, correct? That's basically the outcome of these five steps. The outcome is to have a consensus on how to apply the arm's length principle. Oh, I see. So I thought these five steps that the OECD published were for a company to go through to get to the ALP, the arm's length price. But you are saying it's actually a five step for the country to go through? Uh, no, no, it's, it's like... Um 
guidelines on how to apply the arm's length principle. And then to apply the arm's length principle, they're going through five steps. But when you're saying they, who is it they? Is it the businesses or is it the country's legislator? Both. As I said, it's the guidelines to be used by MNEs, which are the group like the big multinational enterprises and also tax administrators. So it's literally okay. having like a transfer pricing language that we can all talk the same on a global level. So we're all following the same. Good. And so these five steps then are the steps you go through. So is the outcome of these five steps just the guidelines or is the outcome of these five steps that you then have a transfer price that makes sense? Yeah. So the outcome is the, the letter, what you said. So it's the outcome is showing that you had applied the arm's length principle. And the arm's length principle is that you have shown that the way you have set your transfer prices is the same as arm's length companies or you know, arm's length transactions would have happened. Okay, good. So these five steps, if I'm an MNE, a multinational enterprise, if I follow these five steps, it will give me a transfer price I can then confidently use, correct? Yes, yeah. Or at least you can demonstrate if you get challenged by tax administrators that you have followed the guidelines. So within that, when you set benchmarks, so to come to that conclusion that I followed the arm's length principle, you would have used some sort of benchmarking within those five steps. So that is showing that our transfer price is in accordance with the arm's length price that we have determined through a benchmarking exercise. Okay. And can you just quickly walk me through those five steps? So what's the first step? What's the second step? So the first step is what are the transactions? What are the actual conditions is what the Australian guidelines are calling them. So it's literally pinpointing what are we looking at? Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing? What is the international related party dealings we are looking at right now? Okay. And then the next step is, so there is a set recommendation to, to what method to use to actually benchmark the actually conditions or what we're looking at. So we're finding a method. How can we actually benchmark that to an arm's length situation? Okay. That we find. Okay. So basically, how are we working out what a third party would pay for this? What yes. is our method? Yeah. yeah. What is the out? comparable? So there is, so I so already said that a little bit in the beginning. So there are five sort of different transfer pricing methods that you can use. And there are like three transactional ones. And then there's two profit based ones. So the three transactional ones, they're more the, the really direct comparison. The first one is, It's called a COP, so it's the comparable unrelated price. So this literally is price versus price. And that doesn't happen very often because we're talking about multinational enterprises. And there's a reason why you are in a group, you have some sort of uniqueness about you. So there's nothing really comparable unless we're talking about uh, commodities And we are using, in some cases, when you have big mining companies and things like that, you can rely on commodity prices and things like that. It doesn't happen very often. There will always be some sort of underlying differences. But if you can use a COP or if you're selling directly to a third party and you have the exact same contract, you can use that. That is the strongest, obviously, because it's like, that's a direct, there's no, you're not going on a broader level. Then you have uh, like a cost plus. That's usually for services or, you know, if you are a contract manufacturer, et cetera. Again, not very likely that you're providing the same to a third party. So it's harder, but you can usually also maybe 
you know, via big databases get, you know, like a good data distribution of a lot of similar companies doing the same thing. So we're just in within the, you know, sort of statistical tools, you can find some sort of average and you can compare that. And then there's also a resale. Sorry, just very quickly to the cost plus, what percentage is accepted? I can imagine cost plus 90% is not accepted. And I can imagine cost plus 0.01% is not accepted either. So what is a common percentage that seems to be kind of... It depends what it is we're talking about. You know, are we talking about really complex R&D services? Or are we talking about really low level, not low level, but sort of very non-core administrative services that we're providing? So you can't say what's accepted. It has to be what is the comparable cost plus that we're looking at. And it has to have the same functional profile to the international related party dealings that we're looking at. Okay, so even for cost plus, we need some kind of comparison, correct? Yes, yes. So that's where we first in this, the first step, what we're first looking at, what is the actual transactions? And then this step, the second step, we're looking at, we're trying to find what transfer pricing method makes sense here. So it's literally, you have to evaluate in this step what makes sense. So we've gone through the direct comparison on price, the cost plus, and then there's also a resale. And the resale markup, that's on a gross margin level as well as the cost plus. So that's that means that you have no value added. You have done nothing. It's literally just on your resale margin of what you've done. So that's you don't have that very often either. I see. I thought when you first said resale, I thought it might be the... Uh ultimate resale value less 20% basically or something like that. So with cost plus, you basically start at the cost and then you add. And I thought with the resale method, you basically start with the top and then subtract. But you are saying, actually, that's not the case. You basically just assume that it just flows through. Yes, yeah. so it's more on your gross margin uh, level. If country B receives the product and then sells it for $100, then under this method, you basically assume that it bought it for $100? That can't be acceptable, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. But it's... Um, oh, is it actually more that you start with the resale value and then you... And yeah, then it's a resale minus. Yes. yeah, Exactly. It's a resale minus. You don't have many... There's not many value add uh, to what you do. So that means with the second method, cost plus, you start with the bottom, basically, the cost, and then you add a percentage... And with this third method, with the resale markup, you start with the top, what you actually then ultimately sell it for to a third party, and then you deduct some percentage. Yes, yeah. Um, okay. Then we move down to the more profit-based uh, methods. Then we're going down to just looking at the operating margin. And that's quite popular because you can imagine the first three ones, it's hard to find any comparables. Like if you don't have any internal comparables, which means that you're selling by selling directly to third parties, then you need to go out and expand to public available data and databases. And those publicly available databases, they don't have prices uh, first. You can do a cost plus, but it will be on a total cost. And a lot of databases have different means of disclosing gross margins. So you can't rely on that. So that's why if you don't have any internal cops, then you probably have to move to what we call a profit margin exercise. And that's where you can use publicly available data. And you usually will have to align with a professional advisor who has access to these huge databases where you can go in and find comparable companies. So you have like a huge economic analysis where you have screening of 
first after you've done step what you've you worked out what are my functional economic profile of my companies or the transaction that I'm looking at and then you input all that into the screening in the database and you come out with a set of comparables and benchmarks okay so there are two profit based methods the first one is the operating margin and the second one is the profit margin correct yeah it's called something else so people in the industry who knows this is called a, a transaction margin method It's a TNMM <laughs> and that's the one, but it's literally just on an operating margin level. And then you can obviously use the cost plus there too, because you can do the total cost over total re revenue. So you have that as a cost plus, but it's obviously much broader than just using a direct cost plus. From what you're saying, I gather that it's a lot more common to use the transaction-based methods than to use the profit-based methods, correct? Uh, no, so it's a bit confusing. So that's why I was trying to say the operating margin method, but it's actually called the transactional net margin method, the TNMM. That's the most common that people use because most MNEs, they don't have the internal benchmarks. So they have to go out on a broader level and trying to find benchmarks that have similar operating margin that they do. So, so a lot of times, if you look at a company, if the international related party dealings are a vast majority of what they do in terms of activities and uh, where they source product for or provide products, that makes, makes sense, right? Because most of the, you will say, if their operating margin are within the range of the comparable independent benchmarks, you will say, well, our internal transfer pricing should be in accordance with the arm's length principle because our operating margin is similar to what independent companies dealing at arm's length have. So it's okay. like an indirect comparison, right? So you're saying when you look at smaller MNEs, it's actually not the transaction-based methods, but it's the profit-based methods that are the most common. And within that, it's actually the TNMM, the uh, transaction net margin method that is the most common. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. That really surprises me. I would have thought that the cost plus method is the most common because that's just easy to determine and I guess the cost is easy to determine of course the plus percentage that percentage of course is harder to determine is that why it's not as common because my first initial thought was that the transaction-based methods especially the cost plus and the resale method would be the most common because they're just easy calculations you look at what you paid and you add a percentage or you look at what you sell it for and you deduct a percentage so my My initial thought was that those would be the most common. So I'm surprised that you're saying the TNMM, the transaction net margin method, is actually the most common. It comes down to having um, comparable benchmarks. So the cost plus is probably most common if you look at, for example, intercompany agreements. So especially for service agreement, it's very common to use a cost plus. But a lot of times when you actually have to do the documentation, you don't have an internal benchmark because you don't sell to third parties unless you do that or you don't provide the same services to third parties. So that's why you have to go to the next level. So while that's not as perfect as having a direct comparison, then you just broaden it. So you're looking at a net margin, which means that you know it's not quite exact the same as your company, but you're allowed to broaden it a bit more because you're looking at a net margin. And then hopefully you can get enough benchmark to support that within a range, within the sort of interquartile range of that comparable data set that you have, that if you fall within that, you are okay and you're following what arm's length parties would do. 
So you're saying the transaction-based methods are tricky because you need an external comparison. So you need to be selling to external parties to have a comparison, to have an internal benchmark, correct? If you don't have that, then the transaction-based method is no good and you need to go to the profit-based method, especially the TNMM, because that allows you to use publicly available data and comparisons, correct? Yes, that's right. <laughs> so that means we looked at the five methods to benchmark. And we came onto that because we were going through the five steps that the OECD has outlaid in this law of 1995 or this framework of 1995. The first step was, what is the transaction? And then the second step was, what is your method to benchmark? And there we went through these five methods, two are transaction-based and two are profit-based. The third one is actually application of that. So you let's see, you've chosen the TNMM a profit-based method. So we're going out. So the third step is actually showing, running that uh, analysis, and then you're doing a comparability analysis. So with the chosen ones, you go through and details what level of comparabilities you have to each of these benchmarks that you have selected. Hopefully the result is then you are within the range, uh, the interquartile range. So let's say you are a distributor and we have found benchmarks between three and 5%, and your operating margin is three and a half percent. And we're saying, well, we will explain why you're sitting where you are, depending on you know market conditions and what you're doing or how much or less risk you assume. And then we say, okay, we believe based on our investigation here that we are within an arm's length range and therefore we are applying, or so we are complying with the arm's length principle. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20%. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups. Because this year, I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time... DocuSign. So the first step is, what are you doing? What is the transaction? The second one is determining which method you use to benchmark. We discussed the five available. The third one is actually applying that method. The fourth step is reviewing and comparing to make sure it makes sense. And then the fifth one is to then actually do it and to say, yes, that transfer price is okay. That's the one we run with, correct? Um, you stepped a little bit too quickly. <laughs> so the fourth one is, it's literally saying, Yes, we can sign off of that no transfer pricing benefit exists. So that's more like sort of the tax legal part of it. So saying mm -hmm. we are not transfer pricing or profit shifting. And then the fifth one is actually just making sure that you are contemporaneous with your transfer pricing documentation. And that's making sure that you are monitoring your transfer pricing position during the year. Okay. So the fifth step is basically just document exclamation mark. Correct. Yes, and monitoring that you're doing the right thing. And if anything changes during the year, that you are making sure that your transfer pricing position is still intact. So this is the framework from 1995. Did the BEPS project change anything? So in uh, 2015, the BEPS project come in and there was the 15 action points. BEPS stands for Base Erosion Profit Shifting. 
It's to do with the whole digital economy and how extremely difficult it is to monitor what's actually going on within all these MNEs. And also the world is changing rapidly. It's the globalization are happening. A lot of companies, especially with the digital economy, it's not necessarily that they want to do the profit shifting, but it's just like the world becomes borderless, especially when you're working in these somewhat extremely large MNEs. It's not that intentionally they want a profit shift. That's one token. And the other token is also, well, tax is a cost. We want to minimize cost as much as possible. So a lot of planning has been going on for many years in terms of having a tax effective rate. So you want to minimize that. You want to have a low tax effective rate globally. So obviously, there's been an incentive to put for MNEs. There's been an incentive to go for very safe harbors or tax havens, we also call them, or low tax jurisdiction. And we've seen that popped up in the Jersey Islands, we have Caribbean Islands, we have Ireland, a lot of places like that, Luxembourg. So what happened in 15 and also prior to that, the BEPS came in to try to also clean this up, but it's having a more developed consensus building on 95 rules. So the 95 transfer pricing guidelines are still in place. They just have an updated version because the BEPS is coming, but it's still the principle is exactly the same, but it's now been built out to try to make sure that everybody has more tax certainty going forward and also minimize the disputes that's going to happen, but also with all the green economy and all like for MNEs to do the right thing. Because they don't want to have a bad name in, in certain tax jurisdictions that they're not paying the tax they should pay and so forth. The BEPS project is basically just for legislators, correct? The BEPS project doesn't tell companies what to do or not to do. It was basically just guidelines for the legislators in all the different countries to fine tune and harmonize their legislation. So what we really need to focus on is now the guidelines that have been enshrined into Australian law, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. The BEPS, some of it has already been implemented. So in the BEPS, there is Action 13, which is the country by country reporting requirements. And it is to provide tax authorities around the world transparency into the MNE's activities and verify that there's no tax avoidance and profits are taxed in the appropriate location. Do you mind, Benedicta, if I just very quickly check what the uh, threshold is for country by country? Because I think from memory, it's quite high, isn't it? In Australia, you have to have the global revenue of $1 billion. So that doesn't apply to most small and medium business in Australia? No, no, it doesn't. But it applies to a lot of companies. So what it includes is that you have to do three reports. One is a country by country report and then a master file and a local file. And the local file obviously is in the local jurisdiction. But because the threshold is $1 billion, I think it's okay for us to just kind of note that country by country reporting exists but doesn't apply to most of us. I have a question for you. This five-step process that was outlined by the OECD in 1995 and has basically been adopted by BEPS as well, slightly adjusted, is that now also law in Australia? The Australian transfer pricing rules are completely aligned with that, yes. So the five steps we went through is basically also Australian law, not just OECD. Yeah, that's Australian law. Thinking back to these five steps, And for a small to medium business in Australia, what's the biggest challenge? My gut feeling is the biggest challenge is just find the right comparison. Do you agree? Or maybe documenting it. Is, you know, that's probably a bugbear as well to have to document everything. Yeah. Okay. I think I should just take a step back. So 
in Australia, the transfer pricing laws, it's not a law that you have to follow the five-step process to demonstrate that your international related party dealings are complying with the arm's length principle. It is a recommended guideline to do that. Ah, okay, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the transfer pricing laws are that they give powers to the commissioner if they go in and assess that the way you're doing your business is actually profit shifting or they do not believe that arm's length parties, for example, would do what you are doing. So the commissioner can reconstruct into what they believe, which means that, for example, let's say you're earning an, a, a 2% operating margin in the last five years. They believe that that's wrong. You should have earned a 6% operating margin the last you know, five years. So they can actually go in and adjust that and claim that they want to see that tax for the adjustments. Plus, if they find that you haven't complied with the transfer pricing guidelines in terms of the documentation, and you haven't had like a contemporaneous transfer pricing documentation to support this, you get penalties on top of that. So the guidelines in Australia is actually called the five questions. It is in essence the same. What it is in Australian and for Australian taxpayers, it's more to do this and follow the guidelines and make sure that you have this in order every year when you're doing your tax return. So it's almost like an insurance policy. Yeah, or like a safe harbor. Yeah, safe harbor is a bit different, but it's more like it's an insurance policy that if you do the right thing or you have attempted to follow the five-step process to prove that the arm's length price that you have is in accordance with the arm's length principle, then you are much more likely to have reasonable, arguable position in front of the commissioner so they won't go in and reconstruct what you're doing. So what you're saying is that the commissioner has actually full discretion. He can go in and tear apart the transfer pricings applied. If you follow the year five steps or what is called in Australia, if you follow the five questions, you have a good defense, but it's not a watertight safe harbor. That's what you're saying, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. But you have already put your position ahead. And if you have followed that and the compliance obligations, which we can come back to, then you won't get penalized on top of the adjustment. But it doesn't guarantee that you don't get adjusted. But at least I say insurance policy because it's got a deterrent. It will minimize your risk for being challenged because the HEO can see you've done the right thing. It doesn't look like there's any mischievous behavior here and your position seems reasonable and it's been documented and supported by a robust transfer pricing documentation. So following the five steps or five questions doesn't protect you from an adjustment, but it protects you from penalties. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. But it will also minimize your chances of getting challenged, right? Hmm. Or going to like a risk review or audit. I think a lot of people stumble over the transfer pricing compliance burden because they sort of look at it in a very reactive, something like, oh, what happened last year? We have to do this and that and we have to put all this documentation together. And so I always advise when we meet somebody first is that have a very proactive look at what we're trying to achieve and trying to make it fit into the future and really thinking about if you have the 
possibility in your group to actually look at the design of your transfer pricing and the structure and how it's aligned with your businesses. Because if you're doing all this right and setting it up in the right manner and actually doing a transfer pricing planning and design, you can formulate that into a policy and agreement, then any documentation will just be trivial after that. And it will also just help your businesses in so many other aspects. See if you can revert the reactive into a more proactive approach. Welcome back. So it is all about the five methodologies outlined in TR 97-20, taxation ruling 97-20. So that year must have had a lot of tax rulings. 20 is really high. I think 2022, for example, had four tax rulings if Google is right. So 1997 must have been a very prolific year. So TR 97-20 is the tax ruling you need to consult to work out your transfer pricing issue. And there, the ATO goes through five methodologies in quite a bit of detail. Benedicta already covered those, but let's just quickly run through them again because they are quite confusing. Transfer pricing methodology number one, comparable uncontrolled price, CUP, CUP. The first methodology The CUP method, CUP as in comparable uncontrolled price. The CUP method is quite easy to grasp. If you sell the same product or service to others, then you just use that price. That is your CUP. But to use this price, the product itself, sales volume and the terms and conditions must be comparable. If the product is quite different or the sales volume or the terms and conditions are miles apart, then the price is not comparable and you can't use the CUP method. Now, depending on who those other people are you're trading with and who you're selling to, depending on that, there is the internal cup method and the external cup method. 1A, internal cup method. You use the internal cup method if you are selling the same quantity of the same product with the same terms and conditions to third parties as well as a subsidiary. In that case, your sale to third parties gives you your cup. Let's say you're a mining company and you mine rare earths in Western Australia. Let's say that rare earth is high in monazite and thorium, but you don't have the facilities to refine it. And so you sell it to China, which extracts the monazite and thorium and then sells it to battery producers and so on. But now you have decided that you also want to set up your own refinery, for example, in Canada. And so you set up a company in Canada and now you're selling your rare earths to China as well as your related party in Canada. So for that, you use the internal cup method. You take the price China pays you and that is what you charge your related party in Canada. 1B, external cup method. But now let's say you still are a mining company in Western Australia. But so far, you didn't mine rare earths. You mined something else, iron ore, whatever it is. But you didn't do rare earths. But now you got the mining rights to a rare earth field with lots of monazite and thorium. You can tell I like those two words. I'm pretending I know something about rare earths. So you have this new field with lots of monazite and thorium. And rather than selling it to China like your competitors, you set up your own refinery in Canada. And that's the only entity that buys from you. So you don't have an internal cup because you're not selling to a third party overseas, but your competitors do. And so they give you an external cup. You look at what they sell their unrefined rare earths for, and that is your external cup. So both your internal and external cup are quite straightforward if you have the data. 
The challenge with both the internal and external cup, of course, is that very often you don't sell the same product as somebody else. If you don't sell a commodity, then your product is probably unique and different to what somebody else is selling. And then it is difficult to get a comparable price. So that is why the cup method, while easy in theory, it's easy to understand, is actually not that widely used. Just a side comment, TR94-14 apparently also gives you a few examples for the cup method, but I haven't checked this out. I was busy enough with 97-20. And also, I think it's actually not that difficult to understand cup. I struggle with understanding the other methods, but cup, I kind of get, and I can imagine you also get it, so we don't need more examples. But if you need more examples, then please look at TR94-14. Transfer pricing methodology number two, resale price method. RP. The second method is the resale price method, RP method, listed in TR 97-20 like the others. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. Benedicte actually listed this one as the third method. So I'm following the order as it's outlined in TR 97-20. I hope that doesn't confuse you. As I understand it, you look at the profit margin that others are getting. Let's say you have manufactured a widget and now sell it to a subsidiary and there are other firms which sell a similar widget and they all realize 100% sales margin. So then you take this resale price divided by two and that is your transfer price to your subsidiary. So that is your resale price method. Now coming to the cost plus method. Transfer pricing methodology number three, cost plus method, CP. The third method is the cost plus method, and it uses a similar approach as the resale price method, just the other way around and slightly different. So you look at the margins that others are making for the same or similar product, and then you apply this to your cost. Now, for both methods, the RP and the CP method, so the resale price method and the cost plus method, you look at gross margins. The problem, of course, is how do you work out what gross margins others are making? They're not going to tell you. It's not like you can Google this stuff. The ATO realizes this, and so that's why they write in TR 97-20. The application of the RP and CP methods is dependent on information about arm's length margins being available to either the taxpayer or the ATO, as there is no current requirement in Australia for companies to publicly disclose their gross margins it may be difficult for taxpayers to obtain the information needed to apply either of these methods. So these are the transactions-based methods. The ATO calls these the traditional methods. And apart from CUP for commodities, they are actually not that widely used. And then you have the two profits methods. Transfer pricing methodology number four, profit split method. The first one is the profits split method. You look at the total profit made from start to finish and then you ask if all these associated entities had traded at arm's length, how would the profit most likely have been distributed? What profit would be economically viable in each transaction? So if they had acted at arm's length at each transaction, what profit would they roughly have made? And based on this, you work out the profit margin in each transfer. Transfer pricing methodology number five. Transactional Net Margin Method, TNMM. And then the last one is the most commonly used one. The big difference is that this one uses the net margin. RP and CP use gross margins, but this one uses the net margin. And the profit split method, and the method we just discussed, looks at the profit in the entire pipeline and then allocates it. Whereas this method, the transactional net margin method, looks at one transaction and then compares it with the net margin of your competitors selling similar things. Now, 
does this make sense to you? I have to admit that I'm still seriously confused. I get the first method, I get cup, and I also get the fourth method. I get the profit split method where you just basically look at the entire profit margin and then you look at what most likely would have happened at each transaction and you just allocate it according to that. Those two methods I understand. The other ones, I'm hazy. And the methodologies really sound like an academic exercise. Worlds apart from a small business in the trenches trying to make a living. How are they meant to work out how to apply one of those methodologies and how to even choose which one is the best for them if even we as number nerds are seriously confused? At least I am. And if they don't, if our clients basically just muddle through this transfer pricing problem together with us, how likely are they to get audited? And this sets the stage for the simplified transfer pricing, officially called simplified transfer pricing record keeping. Because this is actually not a different method. It just means you need to document less. There is simplified record keeping. And so that is what Benedicta Ulrich of Anderson Australia will discuss with you in the next episode. Maybe the simplified record keeping rules will be the white knight in the night that saves us. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. 